Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. For me, my vision equivalent in terms of the light sensitivity is like when you get up at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you turn on the light. Allison Lynch lives in the space between low vision and blindness. And you're like, oh my God, this is the most blinding center of the sun feeling I've ever had. That's pretty much what I'm seeing because my eyes never adjust. She's a lawyer who works on behalf of those with mental illness. She's a runner with distance on her mind. I just feel like people should come here for the truth. But Randy starts the conversation with life as a millennial. I saw uh, that you're sort of uh, right at the end of your 20s, beginning of your 30s, you know, right smack in the middle of the millennial generation. So I Googled, how many millennials does it take to screw in a light bulb? Welcome to the Dangerous Vision Podcast. We're here with Allison Lynch. Alcom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, in the, in the, in the early podcasts, I didn't really uh, prepare because I have no experience interviewing people or anything remotely like this, and I don't know what I'm doing. And so I guess that would have been a good reason to prepare more, the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. But, of course, what it caused me to do was not realize I needed to prepare. So now, though, I'm trying to be good and prepare and plan ahead. And so, you know, I saw uh, that you're sort of, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, right at the end of your 20s, beginning of your 30s, you know, right smack in the middle of the millennial generation. So in order to be properly prepared for the podcast, I Googled how many millennials does it take to screw in a light bulb? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, I would say the, the best answers I saw were um, uh, none, their parents will do it for them. Um, I liked, um, I liked uh, uh, why would you need to change a light bulb when you can't afford housing? Uh, I thought that, that was a good sort of slightly mean that, that one. Hits, that hits so close to home. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the light bulb has to want to change. I thought that you know, kind of captured. Do you have any, any, uh, any, any thoughts uh, on that subject to contribute? Oh man, that's, that's actually really good. Um, yeah, well, I live, I live in kind of this weird bubble of New York city where it's this mix of millennials who are exactly like that. Mm-hmm. And then other people who, are looking down on all the millennials who are exactly like that. Um, yeah, it's, but, yeah, I will say yeah. it's a very self-aware uh, and self-mocking generation. And I think um, we don't get enough credit for that. You know, that like, I suspect that the vast majority of these millennial jokes were in fact written by millennials, right? Oh, I have no doubt. Yeah, no, we are we are best when poking fun at ourselves, yeah. I think. Yeah, well, it would be best when, when poking fun of yourselves and, and when eating avocado toast, right? Those are the big two. Listen, don't come for avocado toast. If any of those stereotypes are true, it's probably that one for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I will not steal your your avocado toast. All right. So tell us a little about you. So why don't we start? I I like to start off by um, giving our our listeners just a sense of of where you are in terms of vision. I myself uh, still have a little bit of vision. I have retinitis pigmentosa. My vision gets – so right now I can just kind of, uh, I don't know, just barely uh, poke my way around the world uh, with a little bit of sight and uh, for, for, for a lot of things I need help. Um, tell us where you are and and uh, and what the evolution has been. Sure. So I have something called achromatopsia, which is almost the exact opposite of what you have. Mm-hmm. So for so me, so like you see everything perfectly. It, <laughs> I see everything perfectly when there are no lights on in a room. <laughs> Which is obviously such a normal everyday occurrence in my life. Um, No, so for me, achromatopsia basically means that the cone cells in your retina, which people with nice functioning normal eyes use to process light and color and see distances, I have them, but they don't work. So for me, I have to rely 24-7 on rod cells, which are the cells that everyone else uses only to see in very low light. So the rod cells aren't sensitive to color. They don't do really well with light. It's For me, my vision equivalent in terms of the light sensitivity is like when you get up at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you turn on the light and you're like, oh my God, this is the most blinding center of the sun feeling I've ever had. That's pretty much what I'm seeing because my eyes never adjust. So the light sensitivity is is probably the one of the more kind of difficult things visually for me. Um, the thing that people 
really pick up on when I describe my vision is that I'm also grayscale colorblind. So I've never seen a single color in my life. And that almost always immediately leads people to ask, oh my God, so what color is my shirt? <laughs> they, uh, you're like, you know, what's funny. I've never been able to see color before, but I can tell that your shirt is, I, um, well, don't, don't, look, I, I'm just here to tell you the whole color thing, totally overrated. You're not missing nothing. You know, I mean, I, so I was actually joking with a friend. I have a list of things I would love to see in color if the gene therapy stuff ever pans out so I can go back in like 50 years and be like, man, I bet that movie was awesome if it had color. So I can like go back through the list and, and have a big adventure of, of just seeing stuff. Um, so no color. And then the last thing is that I'm legally blind. So obviously it, it's a little tricky to measure for me because the light sensitivity is such a big factor. But basically somewhere around 2200, 2300, um, getting progressively worse with light. So achromatopsia itself doesn't get worse over time. This is how I was born. This is how I will forever see, um, barring some, you know, lab accident that knocks out the rest of my vision and gives me some awesome superpower. But, um, this is, this is how it is. Um, and really the only differences visually that I have are how much light is in the room, how dark are my sunglasses and how far away is the thing that I'm trying to see. Mm-hmm. I see. And so, so, but give me a sense if you're looking like, can you see, can you, can you, uh, find an article on your phone by seeing the words or do you need to use voiceover for that? Yeah. So I use, um, I, I still use the words. I have tried the voiceover and I'm just not super proficient at it. Um, I use a lot of zoom stuff on my phone. So I have an iPhone and I really take advantage of that. Like Zoom's three finger amazing. tap to zoom thing. Zoom and the, Love the color that. reversal can also be a huge help in my experience. I do that sometimes too. Yeah. I like the white text on a darker exactly. background sometimes. It's a big yeah, advantage. That's nice. But ha- have you tried speak screen? I haven't actually. No, I don't know what that is. Is a must use. So, so I I can still just barely make out the words on my phone, and so I'm starting to use voiceover more, partly because it's useful now, and partly in preparation. Because as I say, my thing deteriorates, so I know it's going to get worse before it gets better. Hopefully, someday they'll cure me. But for the time being, it's getting worse, and so um, uh, so I want to get get as you say proficient with voiceover. But the thing that is the gateway drug to voiceover is a feature called Speak Screen. So you go into settings. And you turn on, um, just turn it on once. You only have to do that once in your life. And then um, uh, what you do is if you flick down with two fingers from the top of the screen, so you put your two fingers on the middle top of, uh, of the phone, and then you just you know flick down towards the bottom, it will read whatever's on the screen. And so the way I would typically use that is let's say that you know I uh, want to read the uh, article about you – know, I want to read an article about my Philadelphia Eagles beating the Redskins yesterday, right? So first – you know, I'll go to, I'll click on, uh, on, you know, whatever the, the app or favorite for the, for the sports website. And then I'll use voiceover and kind of crawl around looking for something on the game that sounds interesting. And then I'll double tap to, to get into that. And then I turn off voiceover because the gestures differ. So you have to turn off voiceover to do this. Uh, and then I flick down from the top of the screen and then it just reads me the whole article. And it's great because you can then do all kinds of other stuff on your phone. It's, it's reading as a separate thing. You can then go check and see if you have any text messages, look at your schedule, whatever. And meanwhile, it's reading out loud the whole article, um, and you can set it for any speed you want. It's got a, a, a nice little interface to, to change speed. Um, and uh, so if you're reading easy stuff, you can make it go very fast. Then if you're reading legal briefs, you can slow it down. Uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic. So, so I recommend wow. that. It's sort of I, I feel like it's a feature aimed primarily at people who have bad vision but aren't you know fully blind. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's like right in that weird crossover where I always am. It's great. So, okay. So now you are, uh, among other things, an attorney, yes? Yes, I am. All right. And so with the attorneyfying, so is, is, can you read, can you read briefs, the briefs on paper or do you need to convert that for, for long read? Cause, cause a lot of us who can see individual words still, if we're going to read something long, it's just too exhausting for the eyes or, or is your, is your thing such that, um, uh, that that's no problem to read long documents? So I can read long documents. It's not always my preference to do it on paper in print. So luckily, a lot of the courts that we file in and that we have regular dealings with, everything is done online. So for me, I'm I'm sitting in my office right now. I have um, two massive computer screens Mm -hmm. that are they have the uh, the dimness turned all the way down and like no one would want to read on them if their lives depended on it. But I love it. 
And so what I will do is I can download documents that I need to read or review or research that I need to look through. And I can zoom in on the PDF either on one screen or both screens. And that to me is way more comfortable. So yeah. I, w- I, I would say I probably do 95% of any kind of document review always on the computer. And so do you find that your site causes you any challenges as a, as a lawyer or is everything pretty straightforward given the nature of your problem? I think there are some instances. I'm sorry, I just use words like problem. Every <laughs> once in a while, I'm like, it's not a problem, damn it. No, I, I <laughs> don't really understand. The other day someone was like, is, is it weird to call it a disease? Is it a disorder? How do you, how do you talk about it? But it's, it's true because, and it's funny, I'm in a profession where the specific field of law that I work in is uh, has to do with mental health. And so we would never really say to someone like you suffer from depression or bipolar, you know? And so I'm always so sensitive about my terms with my clients, but then I'm like, Oh yeah, I have this disease. And people are like, what? yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so, you know, for me, terminology, I, I get it and I get the distinction and I try and respect what everyone else wants to call their thing. But yeah, I mean, let's be honest, it's a problem some of the time. Um, and so with that particular problem um, at work for me, I would say, a lot of my day is spent either in the office or dealing with people face to face who know me or who have gotten to know me. And so they understand that, like, if they send me an Excel spreadsheet that I need to look through that has a bunch of people's records on it. If you highlight something in green and yellow, I will have either I will have no idea or I won't be able to tell the difference. And I'll think it's all highlighted. It's the same. So there's like stupid stuff like that that I just have to bring to people's attention. Um, I think the things that are... <laughs> that happen less frequently, but are probably more in my mind kind of problematic or difficult happen when I'm immediately placed into a new environment and I have to kind of navigate that. There's nothing about me or my appearance that would give it away except when, you know, for example, someone's handing me something just, you know, in, in the wrong corner of my vision and I just have absolutely no idea. And they're standing there like, ma'am, ma'am, Excuse me. I, I, I used to have all the all the. I found out late in graduate school that there were all these people who thought I was like cold and aloof because oh my God, I walk by them and not wave hello. It's like, yep. yeah, I, I, dude, I so totally had no idea you were there. That's like the first few weeks of law school, the exact same thing happened to me, and and it was only later when I was in a study group with those people, they were like, we thought you hated us because you <laughs> walk through the hallway, we would wave and be like, oh my God, hi, and you would just walk right by. But then yeah. in class, you'd sit down next to the person and be like. Oh, How's it going? And they were like, we had no idea what was going on. So I, um, so uh, obviously, I don't know you. I'm not going to advise you on how to live your life. I'll just tell you my experience, which is, um, you know, at the at the last possible moment, after a couple of near death experiences, uh, uh, a, a dear friend of mine bought me uh, a cane from a company called Chris Park Design, which uh, basically it's uh, collapses sort of the way shaft of an umbrella would, uh, so that it just fits in my pocket. It's nothing. Um, certainly for a woman with a purse, it's absolutely nothing. And it weighs almost nothing. I pull the cane out and then people are so nice to me. I- I'm going to uh, highly recommend, I-, I may just send you one of these canes, just like to have in your purse. And, like in a pitch, like if you're in the airport and you're confused and you pull it out, people just like run up to help. You know, they're just like, oh, somebody needs help. It's so useful. Whereas there isn't really another way to send that signal. You know what I mean? You can't start jumping up and down and yelling, I'm black. I mean, you could, but it would, that would be even weirder, right? But, but it's, it's, so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty attractive from that perspective just to have that option. I'm throwing it out there to you. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. I think the funds are just not being allocated in kind of helpful ways. Like life is, life as a blind person is so much better than you'd think it would be. I never wanted to be in that position again. But first, Life as a Blind Person by Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Sassy Outwater-Wright. If you're the one stuck with Thanksgiving cooking chores this year, let's talk about pie crust. My favorite trick for dealing with pie crust when you can't see it is to stick two identical pie tins into the freezer ahead of time. Leave them there for at least an hour. Take a sheet of parchment paper, put it out on the counter, flour that, Take your chilled pie dough out of the fridge and roll it out from the ball to the flat pie crust on top of this parchment paper. Once it's all rolled out, go ahead and take your pie tins out of the freezer, pick up the parchment paper, flip the pie crust that you have rolled out upside down onto the top of one of those pie tins, 
and then take the other tin and put it over the top. So now you have one pie tin that is upside down on the counter with the pie crust on top and another pie tin on top of that. And they're both facing upside down. Take this, put it into the oven and bake it blind. Put a cookie sheet below that to catch any fat that may drip off. Bake it low, bake it slow, bake it all the way through, and this is my favorite way to get a perfect pie crust every time. That's Life as a Blind Person. I'm Sassy Elwater Wright. So, so tell me a little about, well, so tell me about what kind of law you do. So I, I do, I think David said that you work with, uh, work with disability issues and so forth. Is that true? Yeah. So, um, the best way to describe it is I work for a federally funded nonprofit. Um, we are the New York state protection and advocacy system. Um, every state has their own protection and advocacy system and basically the federal government through various programs it runs kind of gives these grant funds to the protection and advocacy systems in each state and the states can administer them how they wish. Um, In New York, the way we've done that is we've divided it into, um, I think we have eight or nine different programs now that work on different disability issues kind of across the spectrum. So my particular grant project uh, program focuses on mental illness, people who have serious mental illness, both in the community and in jails and prisons and psychiatric hospitals. Uh, But then we also run programs for individuals in New York who have intellectual or developmental disabilities, um, people who kind of have any other, what we call any other type of disability, kind of a catch-all category. Um, We run a voting rights program. We run a traumatic brain injury program. So kind of a lot of different areas of disability issues. um, But because they're all broken up by different grants, um, I only work on the mental illness side. Aren't these mental illness people just taking needed funds away from people with vision problems? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) That is some debate. I'm mostly just joking, but since it sounds like it's actually a debate, tell me more. Well, I mean, I think I'm particularly sensitive to the issue of funding in uh, probably New York State, but all states um, in terms of mental health programming and services and everything. I think there's there's such an emphasis on – in hospital or in jail and prison, the, the funding that gets allocated for programs there, but then someone gets released and to no one's shock, there's, you know, a six week wait for a psychiatrist appointment. Someone has two weeks of meds and they have nowhere to live and they're, you know, uh, in a homeless shelter and they're trying to find services and supportive programs and they just don't exist because the state says there's not enough money. So, um, we unfortunately come up against a lot of funding issues and I, you know, don't know. I think the funds are just not um, being allocated in kind of helpful ways. I don't necessarily think that they're being um, stolen by other groups of people with disabilities. <laughs> I think they just unfortunately don't exist in the way that we would want them so to give exist me an right example now. Of a case where, uh, I mean, you know, you can even you, you can tell me about a real case you were involved with, obviously without revealing any details of of individuals' lives or whatever, or or just give me a sense of like what would be a case where somebody would need your advocacy. Okay, so we to give you kind of a a sense of how things work, we do both individual work and we also do class action litigation. So we will get calls from an individual person who might say, for example, I am experiencing abuse and neglect at this particular psychiatric facility or in prison or in a jail. Um, You know, maybe that's somebody who has been in solitary confinement for weeks or months. Um, And New York has specific rules about people with mental illness being placed in solitary confinement. So that might be a complaint that we get that means that we have to work directly with that individual as well as um, the system that they have been placed in. Uh, We also would do larger class action cases. So we've worked with classes of individuals who have been in nursing homes or adult homes who are able to live either independently or with some support in the community, but 
those particular facilities just haven't made appropriate discharge plans and really just have no kind of interest in doing so. So these are people who have then been kind of stuck in these facilities for, you know, years sometimes, um, in some cases, decades. And so some of the cases that I've been able to work on since coming here have to do with monitoring agreements that have already been made following, you know, years of court proceedings where finally the decision was made to say, okay, this class of people needs to be reevaluated and they need to figure out whether or not you're appropriate for community living. If you are, how are we going to make that happen? Um, And who's going to follow up to make sure that's actually going to happen in the upcoming weeks and months? So it really depends on kind of what comes across my desk and who calls in, but Mm -hmm. it really kind of spans the the realm of uh, possible disability issues. So tell me about, um, tell me about running. Running. Um, it's great. So I started probably about three and a half years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I was kind of just working out for fun. I went to the gym. I had my own little kind of routine going on. Um, because it helped me stay sane through law school. So I was doing a lot of just different fitness classes around the city and um, nothing really stuck. I mean, I was just kind of enjoying whatever I felt like doing. And a friend was like, hey, do you want to train for a 10K with me? And I was like, 10K, that is too far for me to run. No way. Um, But he was like, it's flat. It's, you know, it's going to be great. It'll be fine. You get a medal, you get a t-shirt. And I was like, well, all right, you sold me. So I trained for this 10K and ended up actually having a lot of fun. You're saying, you're saying, you're saying it's a, an event where millennials got a participation trophy. Yes, is that, exactly. is that what, That's what exactly what it is? And you know, we had several, actually, I think we got a shirt and we got a medal and there may have even been food. Everybody here. gets a medal. Everybody That's right. gets a medal. Listen, <laughs> I, I held that near and dear. <laughs> And now I go to races and I'm actually very surprised if it's if it's a distance under a half marathon. I'm shocked if they're giving out medals. So I think uh-huh. the tide has turned, Randy. Yeah. On, uh, I th- I th- that's sort of my sense, too, is that people yeah. realize they'd gone maybe just a step, a step too far. But then, you know, when you're running, like, can you see where you're going or you need a guide? So... <laughs> It's been like, it's been an interesting evolution for me that's kind of still happening. So when I started running, I was just doing it for fun. I was just kind of hanging out. I ran that first race without a guide. Um, It was a road race. It was, you know, flat on pavement. Um, I could wear really dark sunglasses and be fine. And generally that is how I do things for some training runs or for like fun races that I might do with friends. When I started running a little bit more seriously in terms of wanting to train for longer distances or starting to get faster, um, I would notice that I was just missing stuff a lot more. And so my reflexes and my kind of my brain had to be so much more attuned to everything in this very, very small window of space around me because that's as far as I could see. And so when you're in the moment and you're so kind of adrenalized from starting a race or, you know, this crazy crowd cheering you or something, it's so much harder to focus on the steps that you're taking and who's passing you and, you know, grabbing the cup of water with your left hand and not kind of knocking into someone else. So it ended up being a good idea for me to start running more serious races with guides. Um, And it really, it kind of just takes... I I feel like it puts me on a more even playing field because what I'm focused on is performance. I'm still focused on seeing to some extent. I'm not kind of closing my eyes and letting them do the work, but Mm -hmm. I'm less focused on being incredibly concerned that something is coming up in 20 feet that I'm not going to see like an open manhole or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, how's my form? How am I, you know, how are my legs feeling? Can I make this push up this hill? And my guide is worried about, oh, there is an open manhole in 20 feet, so come a little bit to my right. So they're basically letting me relax into the run a lot more Mm -hmm. than I would ever be able to do on my own. And that's been a really helpful thing as I've started to go longer distances and just, you know, get tired. Like mile 18 of a marathon, the last thing I want to do is try and have 
eagle eyes and spot every obstacle that might be up ahead. All I want to do right. is make it through the race. Um, so it's really great to have someone who can support me in that way. Um, and then especially as I've been learning, as I've gotten faster, even in shorter distance races, just, it sounds crazy, but because things are coming at me a lot faster, cause I'm running with a greater speed, I'm still missing a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm training for a 5k and I want to hit a certain time and I'm running really fast, then it's a lot harder for me to get out of people's way or to dodge things because I'll still only see them at the last minute and I'm going much faster, which means I just have less time to react. So I've, um, I've definitely started using guides for a lot of my faster training runs. And, mm-hmm. um, I have a couple of things that I'm hoping to do in terms of like mile races or five Ks. And I think I definitely would benefit from having a guide at those now where, you know, maybe two years ago I would say, Oh no, I can do it. And it's fine. Oh, oh which reminds me. So you were mentioning manholes. Do you, do you know this, uh, this, tri- oh, this, old, this trivia question about why manhole covers are round? This is not a joke. This is like a real thing. Do you know oh, what I'm no, talking about? No, I, I don't. Well, so it, this was at one time, like the most popular question asked in interviews for elite consulting firms like McKinsey or at, at uh, you know, some Wall Street firms and so forth. So uh, then, of course, like word got out and, there, and then it was just a question of, well, if you were in the in-group that kind of knew about the question and knew the answer that, you know, but the idea was to try to, to figure out why are manhole covers round, right? Obviously, they could be square or, or some other shape. So uh, can you, you want to take a shot at the answer? Oh, I don't know. Um, it turns out there's actually um, at least – at least two, at least two good answers. Hmm. So I'm, I won't, I I'm won't torment really, you. I'm getting really scientific about it. Is there something about like seeing a circle that your brain is able to process faster versus other shapes or? So the number one reason is, so I don't know if you've ever held a manhole cover, but they're exceptionally heavy. Mm-hmm. And so the big advantage of them being round is you can roll them. Right. Okay. Words, if you need to move it 10 feet, you can just roll it. Right. Whereas you can't do that with square. But the even more important advantage is uh, that way it can't fall down in the hole. So in other uh, words, if you're down the hole and the manhole cover falls on your head, you will be killed. Right. And um, and the thing, I mean, even with a hard hat, you're probably very likely to be killed. And um, and if it's if you have a square, then you can see that if the square is across the diagonal, it could fall down into the hole. But with a round manhole cover, it can't it can't fall into the hole because there's you well, obviously it's the same no matter how you turn it. That's the the beauty of the circles. And so um, so are you so when so it, it's funny I, I'm here with uh, uh, Chaz from uh, from uh, uh, Mavvy and uh, and David and we were talking and maybe you can join the board of our new organization. We think that there should be a uh, they should j- just have competitions uh, running on the treadmill, right? <laughs> because that way the blind people won't need guides; they can compete on an even footing. And who knows? Maybe the fastest person in the world's blind, and we just don't know it because they don't get to compete on a on an equal footing by running on a treadmill. And the thing is, there's a version of this in crew, right? You know, the rowing people they have erg races where they just get on that concept two rowing machine um, and uh, and just see who can row the furthest and fastest, uh, quote unquote, row. You know, on on the machine. And I don't see why we don't have that on treadmill. Obviously, there would have to be some calibration. But uh, it seems like that would be really cool. And then you could have races where you could have it um, around the globe all at the same time, right? And you could have people, you know, set records, you know, not necessarily at the time. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. And I don't know, I just Googled it and it doesn't look like, I mean, I'm not saying nothing like this has ever been done, but it does not look to me like anyone's doing this in a serious way. What do you say, Yuen? I feel like you're probably right. I, you know, I could be convinced the treadmill and I have a very, um, tumultuous relationship, mostly on my <laughs> own. <laughs> so anytime someone's like, let's do some treadmill running. I'm like, that sounds like physical therapy. That sounds like me being bored. That sounds like a lot of other unpleasant things, but you know, I so you, you have a strong preference to run outside rather than yeah, if even, it's even on the, normal. even on the concrete, like you're not running across beautiful Elysian fields. You're out on the <laughs> hard concrete of, uh, of Manhattan Island, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in central park, so at least I can you know, oh, okay. yeah, that's that good point. for some time. Um, yeah. but Oh yeah. My preference is definitely to run outside. I, I really prefer yeah. that feeling. Um, if I'm on a treadmill, I have to have music or a podcast or something to kind of keep me going because a treadmill mile feels like an outdoor marathon. 
Yeah, I am experimenting. So I go back and forth. Sometimes I like to run listening to music, which obviously you get the beat and all that good stuff. But then the problem is if I'm just running and listening to music, I'm essentially like, uh, and I don't even run. I just like walk fast uphill on the treadmill. Um, I don't run outside because I would just crash constantly. It would be much too painful. But so I do use the treadmill. Um, uh, But what I'd say is the problem then is that I'm alone with my thoughts for an hour and nobody wants that, right? So then um, I'm like, okay, well, I can read on the treadmill. Um, and so I do that, right. And I'll listen, you know, to a book or a podcast or whatever. And that's pretty great, right. Cause it's really interesting and it distracts the brain. Uh, but then you don't get the joy of music. So what I just tried the other day with pretty good success was playing music through the speakers and then, uh, just having one headphone in playing the book so that I'm both reading and listening to music, which is one of the biggest things I miss since going blind. I mean, I used to spend, that was my primary free time activity was listening to rock and roll music and reading at the same time and uh anyway so now i feel like maybe maybe i can maybe i can have that back uh taking advantage of the uh the two ears thing oh i'm i'm totally with you on that i'll do sometimes if i have to be on the treadmill there are some apps that'll do like guided runs and so it's like having someone talk you through a really boring workout and i always put my music on underneath that and then i have the person talking over it and so i'm like Mm -hmm. so incredibly in typical millennial fashion immensely overstimulated but i just love it (laughs) Yeah. Uh, here, I'll ask you this question first. What um, what celebrity or actress or movie character do people say you um, remind them of, or oh. reminds them, of, or reminds them of you? If it might be more appropriate, is there is there someone that people say, which sometimes can be a personality <laughs> thing, sometimes can be appearance, whatever. You got, is there anyone that people? If there isn't one, it's fine. But sometimes, yeah, people nobody have. nobody has ever been able to say like you look like that person. Uh huh. Well, the well, so the the character that in recent years I've gotten this all the time about is um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg playing Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network, and okay. so um, and they, they're, they're not, not that I especially look like Jesse Eisenberg. I mean, I probably look more like him than I do like the average uh, uh, you know movie star or whatever because you know he's a little more normal looking, I guess, than than some movie stars. But but um, but uh, but because of the way he talked in that movie. And then I read an article about how uh, they got him to talk that way, which is they would make him do each the, – the, uh, David Fincher, the director, you know, the, this unbelievably fantastic director, basically he would film the scene and then he'd say, OK, now do it faster. And then he'd just keep making him talk faster. And on many of the scenes, he had to do it 200 times to oh get through God. whatever monologue fast enough without screwing up. And that was what people thought I sound like just regular. <laughs> Two X. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, you can. Well, you'll be able to imagine because you'll listen to this podcast in a couple of weeks when it posts, and uh, you can play it at double speed and see what you think. And you can hear yourself. You're a pretty fast talker, so you can hear yourself at double I speed. Am, yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun. <laughs> Allison looks like a young Renee Zegwaller. <laughs> oh, interesting. I've never gotten that before. I think. I think. I think she pronounces her name Zellweger for whatever that's worth. <laughs> Yeah, she's been pronouncing it wrong yeah, for decades. I understand. I understand. It's uh, uh, <laughs> I'm going back to my booth. Excellent. The um, so, so tell me about going to Manhattan. You're you're a, you're a, a Boston area native, is that right? Um, I would say like New England area. New England, so yeah. I was born in Connecticut, and then I lived in New Hampshire, and then I came to Boston for high school. Okay. Um, and so I was. Actually, I went to Concord Academy for high school, and then I went kind of across the state uh, to Mount Holyoke for college. So I definitely just did a lot of New England time um, in various places. And then I made a very conscious choice to come to Manhattan or just a city in general for law school and kind of setting up my life beyond that. The uh, And so... Um, it, so it wasn't just like that was the best job offer. You felt like as a person with vision issues, the big city was the place to be. Yeah. Well, so I had really early on in college, I started kind of making a mental checklist of things that would be necessary for me um, because I had grown up in an area, especially in New Hampshire, where I was in middle school and then summers during high school, where if you didn't have a car, you were not getting around. Mm -hmm. And I never wanted to be in that position again. So I, I said very clearly, I am living somewhere with public transportation Mm -hmm. and 
that's the end of it. So I knew, you know, Boston is an option. uh, New York is an option. DC, Chicago. There are places that I just kind of mentally said, okay, I could apply to a school here. I could live here. This would be fine. And at the end of the day, when I applied to law school, um, I ended up going with a program that um, at the time I was interested in intellectual property and biotech and medical malpractice. So I went to a school that had a good focus on those and it happened to be in New York and I've been here ever since. You know, I, I think that, that that the reason New York is such a good place to be as a blind person, it's, it's not that it's New York's so easy to get around when you're blind. It's that it's so impossible for everybody else to get around that it kind of oh, brings yeah. them down to our level. We're just not as much a com- competitive disadvantage. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are, there are people in my office who will be hired. And upon hearing that we have to travel all over the state, they'll be like, well, I don't drive. Yeah. Because I've I've that's why exactly that's why i'm here yeah 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 exactly right it's uh yeah i look i i uber almost everywhere because i'm blind enough that even public transit is kind of a pain to use i'm a little scared down in the subway <laughs> you know scared of like falling on the tracks and stuff like that you know it's just uh or, or just getting lost in the tunnels and so uh so I, i'll generally stay above ground if i'm not i mean if, if i'm with other people i'll walk everywhere or take subways or or whatever uh but uh uber's pretty pretty fantastic for for yeah that's that's made a huge difference even outside of the city like if i ever travel for work i can take amtrak just about anywhere but once i get to the station i'm like oh okay here i am in a town where i don't have a ride to the you know course 15 minutes away so i having that all of those rideshare stuff things i mean that makes such a difference and really then puts me at that total even playing field with everyone else like i can show up at the same time you do now one of the one of the things i think that's that's great about manhattan uh is um is is just that i feel like people are much more social there and i i have this theory as an economist that like what happens is like well you know that you can um there's way more restaurants on each block because the buildings are taller so you have all these people living there so you can support more restaurants so but then once there's all and, and also the rents are really high so people have small apartments so they have small kitchens. So now you have a small kitchen that's not that fun to cook in and 25 restaurants, you know, within spinning distance. So then you're going to eat out more. But then once you're eating out that much, now you really don't need a kitchen, right? And so then you get an even smaller kitchen and then eat out more. And then the effect of this is everybody's sort of out every night and it's very social. So thoughts on the social life uh, and uh, eyesight and uh, or just generally, you know, uh, uh, those kinds of uh, issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I I totally agree. Like so much of the culture, I think, of different groups that I've been a part of, whether that's people from work or people that I run with or just kind of friends that I've had um, who also happen to be in the city is like, let's meet for drinks at this place and then maybe we can go to dinner and then maybe we can walk around here and then like grab another drink at this spot. So it's it's very much about being out and about and being in the city and um, being very kind of mobile um, and able to get to different places and try new things. There's there's very little of like, hey, come over, we'll cook a meal and um, watch a movie or something. Like there's, yeah. there's some of that, obviously, especially more in the winter. But I mean, just now, even as the last vestiges of very warm summer weather are happening here, um, that's exactly what I'm seeing. And I personally love it. I feel like as someone with uh, vision issues, for me, that's never really been a deterrent um, because, again, things like Google Maps or Apple Maps exist. So if I get off the subway and someone's like, oh, meet me at this place that you know is not in my neighborhood and that I've never been to, I know the subway stop. That's fine. I'll get off of the subway and mm-hmm. then I can just open my map, start walking in a direction <laughs> and see if it's the right direction. Yeah. Like I'm not necessarily going to be able to get off and see signs right away. I, I but have this theory that New York should... should- I have this theory that New York should like paint the northeast corner of like the curb of the northeast corner of each block like red or something or yellow, and then you could just immediately tell when you get out of the subway or whatever which way is which. Because me, I, I you probably just, like, like a yellow dot, just like one dot. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. We've all gone like three blocks down the We're like, wait a minute. I should have crossed 53rd Street by now. What the heck's going yeah. on? Right. It's exactly a, right. right. It's, it's, it's the thing a, that helped me is memorizing the direction of the avenues. Once I did that, yes. then I could see underground. Okay. So I'm coming up on, like you said, like the northeast corner of 53rd and Lex. Okay, cool. Yes. Lex runs downtown. As soon as I know where I am there, right. then at least I know where South is. Yes, that helps a lot. And then, of course, you know, other than the, the fluke streets that 
that that run both ways, yeah. right? The the odd ones run west, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so and, and you only need to remember one, right? If there's one street where you know, oh yeah, when I come out of this building, the traffic's going to the left, then mm-hmm. you then you and and that's on you know 55th Street, then you know that that which way, the tra- and then you can work it out for right. that. And then I memorize this thing. I don't think this works on all the avenues. There's some weird cases, but I I, I, I like at one point I checked, and it seemed like it's generally the case. I I uh, I uh, my my um my parents both went to Northwestern University, and I and so I memorized the mnemonic. Northwestern is an odd university, right? So the north and west, so the the odd numbered addresses are on the north side of the street, right? That is always that's always true in Manhattan, right? The odd numbered mm-hmm. addresses are the north side of the street, and I think that in general on the avenues, but maybe this is an east side west side thing or something that that the odd numbers are on the west side of the street. So uh, anyway, as I say, that second that second one, people don't don't uh, don't don't count on that being a hundred percent true, but that's my general. That's um, a good, that, yeah, that's a good one. The north I, one for sure that. is right. And that, that helps yeah. a lot, you know, when you're trying to find stuff. Definitely. I also recommend, um, uh, Microsoft soundscape is, uh, is pretty great. It's a free app from Microsoft. Uh, actually our colleague Sassy worked, I, I think on with the people who developed this app and, uh, it's pretty amazing. You turn it on and it'll just, it, it's got a bunch of features that I haven't fully, uh, figured out or incorporated in my life. But the base thing it does is if you're walking down the streets of Manhattan, it'll say 53rd street approaching, you know, goes left or whatever. And so like, that's pretty great, right? So you don't have to be able to see the sign. It'll just say, and it's like, you can just turn it on when you need it. It's like, oh, and it's also quite useful in cabs and Ubers, right? Because then if they're going the road, because then it tells you very fast, right? And it all, it, it also, it'll tell you stuff you're passing, which is kind of neat because sometimes, you know, I'll be like in a hotel, I won't know what restaurants are on that block or whatever. And, and so it kind of gives you, gives you some of that information. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's so Microsoft, really and again, it's free, so that's always uh, that's always a real benefit. It makes it very easy to try something when you know, like they're you know, it's not like you're giving them a bunch of your money. Totally low risk. Even if something costs a dollar ninety nine, I'll like wait five years to try it because I'm an idiot. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'll wait for the reviews on it. Someone I know is going to be a sucker and pay for it. Right. I want to talk about books. I, I I always ask people for book recommendations as I as I explain to everyone. I uh, you know I sort of lost the ability to read books when my eyesight got uh, too terrible. I could still read online as but you know per the stuff we were talking about earlier. Um, and so I read zillions of articles and magazines and other kinds of things online for years. Um, and then I got uh, Bookshare, the service for the blind that basically will read almost any book to me at, uh, at super high speed, like 500 words a minute. So it's fantastic. And um, well, I should say the combination of Bookshare, which provides the books and Voice Dream Reader, the incredible uh, software that everybody should uh, uh, download for $10. Uh, amazing company, amazing product. Um, and uh, uh, and, and uh, by the way, they've never given me anything. I paid my ten dollars for the product is just freaking awesome, and uh, and and uh, so I can now I can read lots of books. But the thing is, that for like twenty years, I didn't read anything after reading like every book I could get my hands on as a kid. Now I'm reading again, but I've missed out on a lot of awesome books. And and in particular, I'm I'm uh, I'm pitching for books that are just super entertaining, just a pleasure to read. Where you like finish it, and you're like, oh my god, I just want to start it over again. Um, uh, so I mean, if you've got a book that'll like make me a better human being or something, sure, I'm interested in hearing about that. <laughs> but mostly, I just want I just want the the pure joy. Of of reading, and so I uh, got any book recommendation for either all time favorites or stuff you've read lately that's really blown you away or whatever. Okay, well, so this is the caveat here. I'm a nerd, so the stuff that I read <laughs> isn't always that like awesome, you know, feel good. Just a I'm a nerd. I'm a, I'm a nerd. I love stories about okay. you know pirates and uh, you know romance and badass marines who invade you know <laughs> other countries and stuff. <laughs> oh, totally. All right. Well, so I mean, I can I can get into some of those things. Like, you tell me. I, I, mean, I guess again, this this goes with a lot of the like law stuff that I do, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like a sucker whenever John Grisham puts anything out, uh-huh. I'm going to read it. Yeah. Um, I've been on a big Stephen King kick recently because the new It movie just came out. Uh-huh. So I was thinking I that and I was like, no, I haven't read any of his stuff in a while. And then the new, the, the um, sequel to The Shining is coming out. So it's a great, great moment to get back into that. So what, um, what's, what's, what's your all-time favorite Stephen King book? Oh, my God, that's so hard. Um, I think it mm, it's a real toss-up because The Shining was the first one that I read. And so I feel like that's always going to have that that special place in my probably too young at that time heart where mm-hmm. I was like, this is terrifying and I can't put it down. Um, 
I also just love Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love a lot of his short stories. It's, I It's funny because the first thing I read was Night Shift, the short story collection. Uh, yeah, and that, yeah. that's probably my favorite just for the same – maybe for the same reason that it's just got yeah. a, a special place. It just, in my it just really sticks with you that first time that you read something <laughs> yeah. like that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I do a lot of that. I also recently <laughs> – Let's see. What have I been reading? Um, oh, well, because of a podcast that I was listening to about, um, it's actually hosted by two women who um, research and, and um, do a lot of, with uh, different infectious diseases, which sounds very strange, but it's actually an incredibly entertaining mm-hmm. podcast. Um, they had a whole episode about encephalitis lethargica, which led me back to reading uh, Awakenings by Oliver Sacks, which led me to just another kind of general Oliver Sacks kick. Uh-huh. Um, so, like the man who mistook his wife for a hat, that yeah, kind of thing. I, I enjoyed that book tremendously. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I just I kind of got back on that train for a while. And um, when I was in college, I studied psychology and neuroscience. So that stuff always like really drew me in, and I was just kind of fascinated with any kind of real life patient stories. Um, and then on the like my other weird, crazy sci-fi side, I will read anything by Michael Crichton. I'm just yeah. like a sucker for that kind of. When I was a kid, I read. I mean, kid meaning you know probably high school age or whatever. I, I read The Andromeda Strain like 20 times. Yes. I just yeah, <laughs> I love that book so much. And I could uh, I could yeah. probably read it other, right now. You know what? You know what? My number happy. one. Crichton book, though, is that I recommend to everybody. This is a book I literally – I can't imagine anybody not enjoying this book. Is The Great Train Robbery. Did you ever read that book? Oh, my God. It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. First of all, it's I will read so anything set in Victorian London. It's just inherently the most interesting time and place in the history of humankind because, like, you'd wake up one day and it took, like, two weeks to get from London to Edinburgh and then, like – a week later, you could get there in four hours on a train, right? Or, or like, you know, there's no phones and then there's phones. Like everything just changed. And just, I don't know, it's just, but yeah, that book is, is that is a perfect novel. I, I, I was, yeah. Uh, I, I was, yeah, I was just telling my daughter about it. I'm like, you got to read this book. It's not homework. It's just pure pleasure from beginning to end. It's perfect. It really is. Oh my God, it's so great. <laughs> the, um, now then late in life, he kind of lost his mind a little bit, although I still, you yeah. know, I still enjoyed those, but, but like, you know, like you read Ri- Rising Sun and it's like, yeah, they're kind of open. <laughs> Bigotry there is a little frustrating to uh, yeah, you know get through. Just for the, you know, the adventure's still good, but it's just a heavy right. price to pay. <laughs> I, I know there's there's some like awkward moments where you're going through some of that stuff, and you're like, I, I just don't. I can. I mean, he, did that, you know, he got he got the like crazy anti climate change stuff and all this. It's uh, yeah, that was what really kind of said, okay, maybe I gotta like take a step back now after yeah. reading the anthology. It's uh, but uh, but yeah, I I do uh, I do enjoy his uh, I do enjoy his stuff tremendously. I even read the one that he like only half finished, and then and then like somebody finished for him. They like found it oh, in his effects. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the um i uh well the book i would say the book i enjoyed that i read the, the book i most enjoyed of the books i read lately and uh so then i was like oh i'll go on bookshare and see i haven't looked lately to see if there's anything new by philip pullman right and uh um so he so he wrote the forward to this book called the balloonist and the book is about these uh this group of people who decide that no one's ever been, it's like back in the 1800s no one's ever been to the north pole and they decide they're gonna t- get to the north pole by flying a balloon there, right? And obviously that avoids some of the problems of like tromping across the frozen wasteland. And uh, and I believe it's based on a real life incident. And um, uh, mayhem ensues, as you would expect, right? It's not going to be easy in the 1800s to fly. They're not going to be like, oh, we made it. We flew right back. No problem. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, so, so, so that subject, that sounded like a, a grand adventure story of the type I would enjoy. And Philip Pullman said, and Philip Pullman wrote this, wrote this intro where he's like, he's like, this is just a fantastic, I can't, be- he's like, I can't believe it's not a classic. Like ever, this is a book you would, th- it was written in the seventies. He's like, you would just think this would be a book that just everyone would read, you know, the way that like whatever everyone reads you know uh the lord of the rings even though they're old right like this is just an amazing book so i read it and it's absolutely magnificent it's just such a great book and um so then i go to read about it on wikipedia um and i'm blanking on the author's name because the problem is he has his real name and then he has the pseudonym he wrote it under and and uh it's like donald mcdonald or something it's not donald mcdonald but anyway um anyway i, I should look it up but, but but and um anyway and it says the book was nominated for the national book award so people noticed it was really good okay and it's just kind of language whatever it did but what's funny is that the guy who wrote it 
ended up uh, founding the um, creative writing department at University of California, Irvine. He like created the, this uh, creative writing program. And, you know, one of the, let's say, five people on the shortlist for my all-time favorite writers is uh, Michael Chabon, who studied in this program. This guy was his advisor uh, and kind of helped teach him to write. And I'm like, okay, all right, now the pieces are falling into place. You know, like I said, so highly recommend to all our listeners, The Balloonist by uh, not Donald McDonald. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can look on my computer. Oh, no, I can't. David, like, closed all my all my windows. I can't I can't get Firefox. I don't know. I can't make my computer uh, work. It's, it, did I mention it sucks being blind? <laughs> That's the theme of this podcast. It sucks being right. blind. No. Right. Don't come here for the inspirational exactly. messages. <laughs> well, it's like, I just feel like people should come here for the truth. The truth is that, yeah. like, it's it's really annoying, and yet, so much like life is life as a blind person is so much better than you'd think it would be. I mean, if you told me at seventeen that that I was like going to be this blind at fifty, I'd be like, not worth it. <laughs> Give up now. <laughs> and in fact, it's like I don't know if I could see fine. I'd be like one percent happier, three percent happier. I just I don't think it would have that big people. Whatever people help a lot. Everything seems to work itself out. The technology is amazing. So yeah, I don't know. Don't give up. Yeah, I'm still holding out for self-driving cars. And after that, I'm yeah, pretty much well, exactly. well, you know what's funny is I was so excited for the self-driving cars. And then I started thinking, wait, but now I've got a car where a guy drives it and then helps me find the door after I'm dropped off. Like, how's the self-driving going to be better? Self-driving is going to be worse, right? It'll be cheaper. It'll be cheaper. You know, Travis Kalanick, the head of Uber, had that obnoxious comment. He's like, yeah, you know, the problem with Uber is we just got to get rid of the other guy in the car. <laughs> Meaning the driver. <laughs> right. He's like, that guy's sucking up all the money, you know, because like the, the, you know, Uber only gets like, tw- quote unquote, only gets like 20 percent. He's like, if we could just get all 100 percent, this would be an awesome business. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's the business model of the future right there. You know, because I feel like most most people do, in fact, have some opinions that are not not widely held, even among their circle. You know what I mean? In other words, it's not an opinion that like, well, all the New York lawyers agree with this, but, you know, middle America doesn't. Like, that's not very interesting, right? I'm saying something where, yeah, the people at your law firm wouldn't really agree with you on this, but you still think you're right. I, this is funny because I was having this debate not very long ago with somebody, and this is an incredibly specific food opinion. Okay. But I think that cucumbers are so overrated. Oh, yeah. I don't like them. I pick them out of salads. I pick them out of sushi. I think they have a very distinctive and unpleasant taste. And I've never found someone it's who agrees with me. It's pretty much just water, right? <laughs> I know, but it, there's like something there that it just taints whatever food is, is nearby. That's a good, you know, the, the vegetable thing that I read recently that I thought was the most interesting was about kale. And what it was saying is, you know how it seems like kale's in every salad these days and everything's on kale? Mm-hmm. It's, um... There was this woman who worked at I, – I may have this wrong, but some, but but if not PepsiCo, then something just like PepsiCo. I think it was PepsiCo. And she was like a top marketing person there. And the Kale Industry Association hired her to make kale the thing, and she did it. She just went and did it. Just like wow. – I don't know whether she had like you know cool kale and vodka parties at the hot bars or, or you know whether she got you know paid Instagram influencers to you know publicly eat lots of kale or you know if it was all, all part of a plot involving Ariana Grande or what. But one way or another, she made it so that now like you – I mean literally like you – it's almost impossible to order a dish in a restaurant without ending up with some kale in there. And uh, oh, yeah, it just shows how easily manipulated we are. It's a little disturbing. It's really true. Yeah. It's a, it's uh but um good. Well, uh I think our work is done here. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so so much for uh for taking the time with us today on Dangerous Vision. Of course. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown. <laughs>